0: This is The Feed, York Region's only news magazine dedicated to the issues, events, and stories that matter to all of us who live and work here.
1: I'm Ann Romer. Welcome to The Feed, York Region's longest-running radio news magazine. Coming up on the show, the aging in place movement, celebrating the year of the dragon and bringing a culture shift to hockey. But we begin with the rise in hate crimes. As the war rages on between Israel and Hamas, the number of hate crimes against Jewish and Muslim communities continues to rise here in the GTA. Toronto police recently released some shocking statistics pointing to a 211% increase in anti-Semitic incidents reported to officers since the Middle East conflict began on October the 7th. Just last month, the provincial government stepped in and stepped up, announcing it would be investing close to $2 million to help combat the increase in hate crimes being experienced by Ontario. Noah Shack is VP Countering Anti-Semitism Hate UJA Federation Greater Toronto. It's it's so good to have you with us on the show, and very disturbing details that we have to discuss. Noah,
2: thanks so much for having me on for this important conversation.
1: So a month ago, uh, Toronto Police released, I find shocking statistics: a 211 percent increase in anti-Semitic incidents. Since the Middle East conflict began on October the 7th, what are your thoughts about that? How do you put together that information and and use it to move forward?
2: Well, we're experiencing an exponential rise in hate crime targeting Jewish people across the GTA. Uh, and it's it's having a deep impact, not just on the Jewish community, on the, but on the broader community as well. This is something that targets the very fabric of our society. When... Uh, Jewish businesses are attacked, uh, when we see arson being committed uh, against a Jewish deli, um, when we see synagogues uh, being targeted, uh, hate graffiti, people being discriminated against in in workplaces, uh, students being singled out uh, and bullied in in classrooms. Uh, It's it's pervasive and it's alarming. Um, If you compare the Toronto police statistics with the statistics uh, taken by the New York Police Department, uh, it shows a really frightening uh, detail. Jewish people in Toronto are five times more likely to have been the victim of a hate crime than Jewish people in New York City. And I think we all think about our city here as being a relatively safe place where uh, we're proud of of our multiculturalism and our and our openness. Uh, and and the reality is um, we are heading in the wrong direction and we need to come together and take action right now.
1: Noah, why did the floodgates open on October the 7th when it came to hate crimes and anti-Semitic incidents? Why did that trigger, I mean beyond the obvious, why did that trigger such hatred among people?
2: Well, I think you saw even on October 7th people coming out into the streets to celebrate the heinous terrorist attacks perpetrated by Hamas, the, the, the rape of women, the murder of entire families, the kidnapping of children, um, you know, these are things that were actually being actively celebrated in the streets uh, uh, in the GTA. Um, that's a really distressing development. And the fact that um, uh, you know, a lot of these demonstrations have continued week after week, in some cases even deliberately targeting uh, predominantly Jewish neighborhoods. And in the case of an arson attack on a Jewish deli, you know, free Palestine was spray painted across that 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 uh, store um, as well. You know, this is a a really distressing escalation that we've seen taking place over the last number of months, and, and we're very grateful to the response of of police in in Toronto and the New York region in particular. Uh, for being uh, so vigilant in, in in both proactively deploying to prevent hate crime, uh, but also responsive in in uh, investigating and holding the perpetrators accountable, and and of course also to uh, Mayor Del Duca in in Vaughan, who's been particularly outspoken in condemning these horrific acts targeting Jewish, uh, Jewish residents of the GTA.
1: So police presence, police investigating, people in authority condemning these acts. What more can be done? How How on earth, and I really mean this, how on earth do we stem the flow of hate crimes?
2: Well, I think, you know, right now we're at a crucial moment where police budgets are being considered. And, mm-hmm. and now is certainly not the time to be cutting police services Um, we need to be safe in our communities Uh, the police shouldn't have to decide whether uh, to deploy resources to investigate murders or sexual uh, violence or hate crime Um, they should be able to address all of those um, at the same time Uh, we should not be uh, prioritizing which victims deserve justice. Um, Everybody should be able to have justice uh, when a crime is perpetrated. Every crime deserves investigation. Uh, And and we need to empower our police to be able to do that. So now is not the time to be contemplating any cuts. Now is the time to really be evaluating how we can invest in our police services to be able to do the, the important job they have to do to keep us all safe Um, I think it's also really important uh, that people recognize the importance of speaking up uh, and standing up against hate whenever and wherever it rears its ugly head. Um, The vast majority of people living in the GTA are good people with solid values. The challenge we have right now is that there is a, a, a small but vocal minority that is spewing hatred and and committing these acts and um unless good people take a stand against that it's going to allow hate to continue to take root and to grow and to snowball and and we need to to each one of us um take responsibility to protect our rights and and take a stand right now before it gets worse
1: noah how important is it that we speak to our children about this right now
2: Oh, I I think um, imparting the values of of, uh, supporting those who are targeted by hate, explaining why um, we need to safeguard our society against this scourge, um, explaining why it's not okay, and teaching the next generation to recognize uh, hatred targeting the Jewish community or, frankly, hatred targeting any community – uh, is so crucial, and there's a lot of great work being done, um, particularly in Ontario, uh, where the Minister of Education has has uh, mandated uh, anti Semitism and Holocaust education as part of grade six civics across the province, and is going to be expanding uh, the curriculum uh, on that subject matter for grade 10 uh, next year. Uh, that's really important, uh, but again, we can't just rely on our institutions to, to carry the torch on this. We each have a responsibility, whether it's with our children or with our friends or in our networks, wherever we might be, to make sure that we are not tolerating hatred in our midst. It's always easy to recognize other people uh, outside of our circles uh, who, who may have hateful attitudes. Um, uh, but it's really important for us to ensure that in, in our own world, in our own uh, midst, we are doing everything we can to make sure that, that we're not tolerating uh, this disgusting behavior uh, that unfortunately isn't just uh, um, making people uncomfortable, it's making people unsafe
1: yeah.
2: uh, and and uh, uh, manifesting as crime.
1: There was a news story that came out earlier this week. Uh, students in uh, the Jewish community attending York University There was the release of a toolkit for teaching Palestine sent out by a group apparently representing teaching assistants at York University. It has made so many students who are of the Jewish faith feel very, very uncomfortable. What what do you know about this, and and what's your message about this?
2: Well, I think the most disturbing thing about this so-called toolkit is that it encourages instructors to uh stop teaching the curriculum that students are paying tuition to have taught. And uh, instead in, inject the classroom a lesson that singles out Jewish student the Jewish student club on campus for vilification and demonization. Um, to, to run a program that uh, demonizes the Center for Jewish Life on campus. Uh, is nothing short of anti Semitism. It's nothing short of hateful. Um, so, you know, above and beyond a, a breach of that contract that everybody enters into, you know, you pay your tuition, you expect to be able to go to a course and be taught the, the course material. Um, violating that is, is a huge problem. And layer on top of that, the fact that it's also demonizing Jewish students and the Jewish Student Club on campus, uh, that's just awful. So this is something that, that no one should be tolerating, it's, it's absolutely egregious and disgusting and, and, and it needs to be called out and addressed and you know, anybody who's doing this needs to be held accountable.
1: And it permeates throughout the student body at York University, so what do you say to them, those who are saying, well I'm not sure I understand what's going on and why or this frightens me or this empowers me, how do you deal with the different reactions from our young people who are our future?
2: Yeah, look, I think it's super clear. Whatever you might think about what's going on in the Middle East, uh, we're here in Canada. That's happening half a world away. And the targeting of Jewish students on campus with hate and discrimination is not okay. That should be something that we can all rally around. And the fact that that is a difficult thing for some people is really distressing and disturbing and needs to be addressed. Um, now is the time for people to take action, to speak up, uh, and make it clear that that's not okay. It can't just be the Jewish students uh, uh, calling attention to this. Uh, this. This should be something that uh, galvanizes the broader student community, the broader campus community, um, and frankly, the broader Canadian community. Uh, this is an affront to, every, to the values we hold dear as Canadians, and, and we shouldn't uh, think twice about calling it out.
1: I want to discuss your title, VP Countering Antisemitism and Hate, UJA, Federation Greater Toronto, Countering Antisemitism and Hate. Countering Antisemitism and Hate. What does this mean to you?
2: Well, I I wish I I didn't have this job and Mm. that it wasn't necessary, Mm -hmm. but unfortunately, uh, the phenomenon of hate targeting the Jewish community isn't something that just started uh, following the October 7th terrorist attacks by Hamas. Um, hate crimes targeting Jews in Canada have been increasing over time for decades uh, and now and, and rapidly increasing in recent years and uh, it 's something that continues to cause increasing distress and it 's something that we need to address as a society. Uh, we need to address hate writ large and for sure um, hate targeting Jewish people as a fundamental component of that. The fact that here in the city of Toronto Jews are are less than uh, 4% of the population and are uh, subject to, I think it's 37% of all hate crime, paints a picture of of just uh, what kind of uh, a challenge we're up against. And and the fact that Jewish people in Toronto are five times more likely to have been the victim of a hate crime than Jewish people living in New York City, uh, that should give us all pause. Our society is heading in the wrong direction when it comes to hate and uh, history has shown us what happens when we allow hate to fester unchecked. Um, We all need to be standing up right now against this scourge uh, and encouraging uh, our institutions, whether it's police or or politicians or universities uh, or or workplaces, to take a zero tolerance approach to this and and to, to ensure that those peddling anti-Semitism are held accountable and that there's sufficient education in place to help people understand what's going on and, and how to stand against it.
1: And also speak up, speak out, just as you oh. have done, Noah Shack.
2: Well, I, I, I really appreciate that. If it, if your if listeners take nothing else uh, away from this conversation, it's so important that everybody use their voice um, because we all have a role to play in building this kind of society that we want to live in, uh, not just today, but down the road in the future for our kids and, and, and future Canadians. And uh, it's so important that we all use our voices uh, to pave the way toward a brighter future um, and, and, and to stop the gathering darkness that's on the horizon.
1: And I appreciate hearing your voice just now. Noah Shack, VP Countering Anti-Semitism and Hate, UJA Federation of Greater Toronto, thank you so much.
2: Appreciate it. Thanks for the opportunity.
1: Next, the brother of one of the Hamas hostages shares his story of terror and hope. Here's Tina Cortez. Michael Levy, tell us what happened to your brother and his wife on October seventh.
3: Uh, my brother, all uh, and his wife, enough, uh wanted to take a short break from their crazy day-to-day routine. They have a two-year-old son and uh, very demanding. Uh, jobs so they headed to a music festival uh, called the nova festival they got there on the morning of october 7th at six twenty, basically straight to hell uh, to a missile attack they had to run into a bomb shelter in order to hide from the missiles for a second they thought they were safe there but a few minutes after a group of terrorists arrived and started throwing grenades and spraying this shelter with bullets, and murdering his wife, in front of uh, his eyes, and kidnapping all into Gaza. And those are uh, our lives ever since uh, October 7th, 114 days of unclarity.
4: Your brother or. Made a call to your mother the morning of the music festival. Are you able to share the details of that call?
3: Yes, this was actually from the bomb shelter. It was at seven thirty nine a m He was terrified and actually his last sentence was, "Mom, you don't want to know what's going on here and that was the last thing we heard from him about ten minutes after this call uh, the monsters arrived at his shelter and murdered his wife and kidnapped him.
4: Has there been any communication at all since that time?
3: No, no, unfortunately not. Uh, the only thing that we do know is that uh, he was kidnapped alive and that he wasn't injured.
4: Can you tell us a bit about your brother? Or you wear a t shirt, I've seen this, with his picture. He seemed very yeah. happy in that image. Is that the type of personality that he is?
3: Yeah, uh, actually, he was always happy, always uh, smiling, always surrounded by friends. Generally, a fun person to be, to be, in, uh, to be around. He was also a genius uh, computer engineer. For me, as the, as the older brother, it was almost annoying to see how smart he is. That's the type of person he is. Uh, he was also a great father, and I'm sure he thinks about Al-Mogh day, all the time. How
4: is your, your nephew? He's probably too young to understand what happened, but he's obviously very aware of the absence of his parents.
3: He is very aware. He calls for them all the time. He wants to go home. Uh, We we can't actually mention the words dad or mom next to him because he will start crying. We had to tell him that uh, his mother won't come back. Uh, That was one of the hardest things we ever had to do. But we, we all try to show him love and support him as much as we can. Obviously, it won't be the same as his parents, but that's what we can do.
4: Michael, how how are you? How do you find the strength every day?
3: It's not easy, but uh, I have a mission, and it's to bring him back. I actually promised my parents I will bring him back, and I owe it to my nephew. Yeah. Uh, it's it's a lot bigger than how I feel I, as a two-year-old boy who needs uh, at least a father.
4: And how are your parents, and where are they?
3: Yeah, my parents are uh, back in Israel, uh, looking after Al-Mog. They are devastated, but at the same time, they have to stay strong for Al-Mog. Uh, to show happy and to try to give him everything he needs.
4: What is life like for them in Israel right now, and what are they hearing from their prime minister?
3: Uh, Every day uh, looks like the the other day. Uh, For us, uh, we still live in October 7th. It's been 140 days now, but we all... They live in uh, the, that Oval Saturday. We talk to the Prime Minister. We talk to the government, but unfortunately, there are no news at the moment.
4: What do you want, listeners, the public at large, government officials to know about you, your family, your brother, the other hostages?
3: I want them to remember just one thing. This is not about politics. This is not about Israel versus Palestinians. It's about human beings with real lives, uh, hopes and dreams, and families who basically held hostages well. I had a life there before October 7th. And this is my life now. I'm traveling the world. I barely see my family. I will speak to anyone who is willing to listen about and tell them their story. And they have to do whatever they can in order to help releasing all and the rest of the hostages. There are still 136 hostages held by... Hamas, uh, including two children.
4: Have you spoken to the hostages who were released, and what are they telling you?
3: Uh, Yes, I did. Uh, Unfortunately, none of them saw all, but they all described the horrible conditions that they had to suffer from. They got less than... uh, water uh, of uh, a slice of bread a day Uh, they couldn't sleep they were hidden in tunnels underground uh, in horrible conditions with horrible monsters who raped and slaughtered their loved ones not long ago
4: Is there anything that our listeners can do to show their support?
3: Yes, uh, anyone in the world can help and pick up a phone or send a letter or talk to the government and give the pressure on the government to put pressure on everyone who can help. It can be the Qataris. It can be Egypt. Uh, Canada can also be the middleman between Israel and Hamas. Uh, but they they just need to understand that those people are uh, real people and they need any help that they can get. They didn't do any anything wrong to anyone. My brother and his wife, only crime was that they wanted to celebrate peace and love in a music festival people were kidnapped from their own beds Mm. civilians kids elderly people those are the people that uh hamas is holding hostage and committing crimes against humanity and the world should take a stand against it and anyone in the world should care because if they want uh, put an end to it now. It will happen again everywhere in the world. It will happen in Canada in Toronto and in New York and practically anywhere in the world.
4: Michael, thank you for sharing your brother's story, your family's story. I know it's not easy, but we thank you and uh, we send you strength during this very difficult time.
3: Thank you so
1: much. Still ahead on The Feed News Magazine, the movement to age in place. That story after the break.
0: Do you have a story idea for The Feed? Call us at 416-335-1059 or email info at 1059theregion.com. Ann Romer and more of The Feed coming up. This is 1059 The Region.
1: Welcome back. Okay, this is new and exciting. It's called the Aging in Place Movement. According to a recent survey, 73% of Canadians 60-plus, who, by the way, now make up a third of the population, prefer to age in their current home or residence. Other polls have it at 9 out of 10 seniors. All it takes is the will and a way. Adapted Homes believes in transforming where you live to improve how you live, from handrails to full-on retrofits and renovations. And the newly founded ZARP, powered by CARP, the Canadian Association of Retired Persons, is advocating for you every step of the way. Please welcome to the feed Bernard O'Flaherty of O'Flaherty Construction and Adapted Homes and Jim Close, co-founder of ZARP. Gentlemen, welcome to the show. Great to have you dynamic duo, the two of you. (laughs)
0: <laughs> Great to be here, Anne. Thank you for having us on.
1: So let's describe to our listeners what the Aging in Place movement is all about and how the, each of you fits in. Let's begin with you, Jim.
0: Well, the Aging in Place movement, as as you alluded to in your intro, uh, has been around for some number of years. Uh, I've been in it uh, prior to even having a, a tagline uh, as Aging in Place for over 30 years. And it really came to light uh, through the COVID years of people realizing that um, our healthcare system isn't what it's uh, sort of cracked up to be and that in fact, we do wanna stay in our own homes. We do wanna live longer in our own homes and the whole longevity movement is happening, healthy aging. So it it's just coincides with everything that we're thinking and seeing and hearing uh, and feeling today. So So when we say aging in place, we're really living in place. And what is involved in doing that safely and comfortably is really what what we're all uh, striving for together.
1: And affordably. And so I now move to Bernard O'Flaherty. O'Flaherty Construction and Adapted Home. So you've got two businesses, but they really kind of come together at a certain point. Do they not, Bernard? Uh,
5: yes, they do. So uh, basically through my general contracting company, O'Flaherty Construction, uh, I got a lot of... Uh, Clients asking me to do work for their parents uh, to help them uh, age in place. So, with that in mind, I uh, set up adapted homes to carry out this work. And my, basically, I go to um, people's homes and carry out as small job as adding a few grab bars to the washroom doing full renovations to help them uh, with whatever needs they need to do. So maybe they might need to uh, remove a bathtub to have a walk-in shower with a seating area. So uh, that's what I do. And I always, in the back of my head, my big drive is I go into someone's home as if I'm going into my own Mm. mother's home back home in Ireland
1: and wanting to treat them the way I would expect my mom to be treated. Oh, you, she would be so proud. <laughs> and still with Bart, Bernard, uh, let's talk about adapted homes. So where did your knowledge of what seniors might want and need in their homes, Bernard, come from? Uh, well, basically, back when I was uh, in Ireland, my,
5: as my trade, I'm an electrician, and we used to do uh, a apart- uh, retirement apartment, and a lot of it was basically fitting out uh, the apartments for what people need, let's say, uh, all the rest uh, equipment, uh, emergency push buttons. Uh, so that was basically where I had this in mind. And then when I moved to Canada uh, over four years ago, Uh, I went into uh, construction management, which led me to setting up my own company, and through my own company, I've got more and more people asking for this uh, work to be carried out in their homes, and I saw the opportunity to set this up to help people uh, age in their homes uh, because, as you say, most people would prefer to age at home rather
1: than move
5: into a retirement home.
1: And that does beg the question, Jim, why do people who are aging, why do they want to stay in their homes?
0: Well, I think there's a number of factors and there's, there's, there's tons of studies happening all the time around this. In fact, our own government's got the aging in place challenge through the National Research Council to, to, to answer that question, And but to the best of my experience, uh, it's where it's it's it, home is your largest uh, investment you've made over your your lifetime, and and at a certain point of time you don't want to move about, um, so you 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 want to stay home. You've you've built the amenities uh, in the home to your liking, and and more strongly is the community base. Uh, generally, if you're you've been at a home for a length of time, you have a social network, you have a community. You have amenities, your doctor, as we again allude to, doctors are hard to find, so once you have one, you're not going to move. So all these play into a factor of why people feel comfortable uh, continuing to live at home. Uh, certainly the, the stories of, uh, you know, the not very nice stories about uh, assisted living and retirement and long-term care homes that came out of the COVID pandemic have certainly put a ripple through people's thoughts. So, uh, you know, the, the I've heard it throughout my career that you know i'm never going to move into one of those places i'm going to stay here so it's it's just a human nature it's a really strong uh sense of home and identity it's, it's uh, maybe you can put it that way it's you know, your home is your identity as, as as a as another factor so that's uh it, it, it is truly a strong strong feeling that people have
1: and how do you protect the elderly. How do you protect seniors and their families who love them and want them to be safe and and also find this to be affordable? How do you protect them from being scammed when it comes to something like this, adapting their homes to to retrofit them to to allow them to age in place?
0: So that that led really to what ZARP is um, through the Canadian Association of Retired Persons, CARP. Um, uh, I've had a long relationship with them. And the concept being that exactly what you said, there there is a proliferation of information out there uh, in the internet waves and, and people's opinions of, of who to contact and who to, who to get to do this. Uh, so it became apparent that um, you could get very confused and lost in a lot of this. So ZARP is meant to be a platform where Essentially, we're doing the vetting of persons and uh, professionals and contractors like Bernard to actually be partners with SARP so that a lot of the work is being done for the families. You, you brought that up; that's a good point. It's not often. It's not. I'd say it's about 50/50 between the actual homeowners looking for services and their family or their or their caregivers looking for those services. So ZARP is meant to be that uh, platform where we connect. Uh, certain needs and, and, and uh, what we call pillars of aging in place. So we're focusing on the large ticket items. You mentioned the affordability uh, earlier, which is a big factor. Uh, some of these decisions can cost thousands of dollars, so you don't want to make errors. So uh, in that respect, we have uh, got the backing of the Canadian Association of Retire of sorry of Occupational Therapists. Uh, involved in supporting this as they are a profession that is uh, very well-versed in pointing out what services and modifications need to be done in a home. So all of this uh, is how we develop ZARP and what we want to continue to build around is that trust factor, is that place to go to, to get the proper services at the right time uh, for friends, family, and uh, and uh, homeowners themselves.
1: Bernard, walk us through from start to finish, if you would. So I looked at your website. I reach out to you. What happens next? What are the questions I should be asking you? What are the questions you ask your potential client?
5: Okay. So firstly, we have an introductory call. Uh, they basically ask me what they tell me what they need to put in place in their home. Uh, We arrange a site visit. We go through everything uh, in the home. I give them my professional opinion on what they need, uh, what I would see would be uh, beneficial. If they're asking for uh, stuff that I wouldn't think they need just yet, I would say, no, we'll hold off on that and we'll look at it in further days. Uh, but we go through everything. We, my big thing is for the client is to get value for money. Nobody, as you say, wants to get ripped off. Um, so we basically go through everything, clarify everything, and then because you're doing this by someone is living at home, you set the date, you set a schedule of, okay, depending on the size of the project, this is going to take me a couple hours up to this is going to take me two months and we put everything in we step by step what will happen and then basically make sure that uh, the client is happy and then there will always be once everything is done uh, we'll have follow-up calls just to make sure everything is working. If they need uh, adjusting our extras at it, then we go to uh, all the process all over again.
1: Bernard, it strikes me that you have the greatest respect for seniors. Am I correct? Oh,
5: 100%. Like The the way I look at it, we're all going to get old one day. And the big thing is to treat them with respect. They're the people who built our economy, who built our country. um, And they're the people that are most vulnerable. I need to be taken care of the most,
1: and they want to stay in their homes. And Jim Close, ZARP, how does ZARP manage to keep an eye on all that's going on in terms of great organizations like adapted homes?
0: Well, it's it's, it's a it's a dynamic process. It's it's ever changing in this in this part of uh, the sector. Uh, there's new information coming out all the time. Uh, we would. We also like to think that, you know, going back to the uh, affordability side, is we like to think that as as Zart Brand grows in conjunction with CARP, in conjunction with also the Canadian Home Builders Association and their uh, adaptive uh, uh, education program that they run, uh, where they've identified that renovators need to have uh, a certain level of expertise in this. All of those groups to be an advocacy voice to uh, the different levels of government in Canada to help redirect healthcare money. And, and that is a uh, you know storylines that are, are, are in the news, is creating some form of uh, tax credits or funding models to allow people to be able to afford to do uh, the changes that are required in their homes to stay safely in homes. And when we did some focus groups uh, a couple of years ago, those were the fundamental questions that uh, the CART members responded to, which was, uh, I know I want to stay home, but what do I need to do? Mm-hmm. So that's Bernard and his group. Um, uh, how do I reach them and how do I pay for it? Yep. So, you know, we're trying to fundamentally answer those questions as we go.
1: Jim Close, ZARP, Z-A-R-P, what's your website for more information?
0: It's it's simply zarp z a r p mm-hmm. dot c a
1: and Bernard yeah. O'Flaherty O'Flaherty Construction. But more importantly, I think to this discussion, adapted homes. How do people reach you?
5: Uh, so you can reach me on Bernard at Construction dot com. Uh, And with Adopted Homes, it's Bernard at AdoptedHomes.ca.
1: That's fantastic. Great to speak with you, gentlemen. And, you know, it is in our future for many of us as we baby boomers age and look forward to a life of safety and happiness and joy and affordability and in our own homes. Thank you both for making it possible.
5: You're welcome. Thank you for having me. Thank you
1: coming up making hockey more inclusive one team at a time that story after the break here on the feed follow
0: us on twitter at 1059 the region and romer and more of the feed after the break this is 1059 the region
1: Welcome back to the feed. I'm Ann Romer. Next, we join the Culture Shift Tour, visiting 100 hockey teams in 100 days. Jim Lang now with the plan to create a safe place for players.
6: Hockey likes to brag about the phrase, hockey is for everyone, but is it really for everyone? Well, someone who's trying to make it for everyone and make a difference in the hockey world and make it better for everyone is an amazing man named Brock McGillis, who I had the thrill and the privilege to be part of in Everyday Hockey Heroes. And he is at the forefront of something called the Culture Shift Tour, making a difference in hockey. And he joins us on the feed. Brock, how are you?
7: Hey, Tim, I'm well. How are you?
6: Good, good. I mean, this is a a paradigm shift in the sport, what you're doing, getting out there, putting your face and who you are in the face of the hockey world to make a difference in this tour at minor hockey teams across the country. Um, Just tell the listeners what it's been like, what this journey has been like to talk to all these young men and women about your journey and your message
7: it's been surreal i i think it's been uh, transformative for me and life changing and it's given me hope um, I, I you know there's there's you you look at across the country and people uh, we we've seen protests and we've seen the media different things that maybe people are anti lgbtq plus or don't want hockey culture to be you know, great for everybody and don't doesn't nobody wants it to evolve, et cetera. But that's not the case. Like people really want it to be a welcoming space for all people. People are engaged on creating good spaces for LGBTQ plus people and it's been really neat and fun and the players are super engaging. Uh, We do some really cool breakouts within it, and they've been a lot of fun to work with.
6: I'm curious, after the fact, after you've gone from town to town, and I I love your social media, like your day in the life of this Culture Shift tour, do you get DMs in your Instagram from some of these young people that you've touched base with and and sort of converse with, and they give you feedback of what the experience was like?
7: Oh, yeah, every day. Oh, is that right? Oh yeah, I have players in my DMs daily, coaches, parents. Um, I, I'm getting emails from folks all over. It's it, it, there's been constant communication. It's been um, overwhelmingly positive, which is really cool.
6: You know, I sometimes we maybe I guess I know I'm a parent, and my partner and I we have two daughters in their early twenties, and sometimes we don't give them enough credit for what a change they're making. Just in life and how their attitudes are so much different than it was for my wife and I in the '80s. And do you think that maybe is part of it that young people coming up and and growing up and you know, whether it's the media or life in general or a school, their attitudes towards uh, uh, people in the LGBTQ plus community is so much different than it was in the '80s and '90s.
7: It really is. Um, they're exposed to so much more at younger ages from television. Uh, to social media and whatnot. And then also more people are coming out. Like you, you think about the 80s and people weren't coming out in the 80s. They were worried about dying of HIV and AIDS. Or if they were out, they were dying. And then you look at prior to that, people were being jailed. So yeah, uh, more kids are coming out today. Like I, I think the more recent... Studies in the U.S. have shown that over 20% of Gen Z identifies as LGBTQ+, and um, 25% identifies not being straight. Hmm. So that's pretty significant number. So they're exposed in their everyday lives to so many more people who are part of these communities that, that they are just comfortable and they've grown up with you know, respecting people's pronouns and different things that it's just normalized behavior for them
6: speaking with Brock McGillis, part of the Culture Shift Tour, who came out in 2016 and has been so open and upfront with his sexuality and who he is as a person and making a difference in the sport of hockey to truly make it for everyone with his Culture Shift Tour, uh, visiting 100 minor hockey teams across the country and speaking to so many different people. Uh, You're talking about the students and, and the hockey people and the players getting the message. When will it, I guess, extend to the powers that be that run national hockey organizations and teams and leagues, if you know what I mean.
7: Like when will they?
6: Yeah, when game? will they get the message?
7: I mean, well, I, I'm I'm in an interesting spot with that. Like the NHL is one of my sponsors, of my tour, and I am thoroughly grateful. But we've also seen what happened with jerseys and pride tape, um, you know, and. Mm. Ultimately, for me, I believe in freedom of choice. So, if players didn't want to wear jerseys, fine. Um, but if players did or players want to use tape, I think they should be able to as well. And, you know, with, with governing bodies and whatnot, like whether it's Hockey Canada or others, um, uh, I think they got to get out of their own way. And I think all these groups have to learn to humanize and educate their players on these issues. Uh, Even the Pride nights we do have, like to me, that's not changing a locker room. That's not teaching anyone anything. It's it's slapping rainbows on things. It's it's nice with some visibility. It's nice that they sell the jerseys and then donate that to charity. That's great. But you know, for hockey culture itself, that is not changing anything in your locker room. That is not making it a safer, more welcoming, inclusive space. And well, there's no players out
6: in the NHL. Mm-hmm. I, I'm, I i don't want you to name names because that would be unfair, but are you getting support from players and personnel in the NHL uh, for what you're doing? Uh,
7: there's some, there's definitely people. I mean, uh, Brendan Shanahan and the Leafs are one of my, you know, partners. Um, or sponsors, uh, there, there, there are people. That's good. There, You know, um, I, I thought there'd be more at that level engaged in this, and same with Hockey Canada, but th- there are some. And you know what? In, even if there weren't, I don't care. I, I really don't, Jim, because I believe what I'm doing is right. And I believe ultimately, in, in the grand scheme of things, uh, it'll have impact. I'm seeing the impact. I have. Uh, we're analyzing it. We're gonna have data to show it, and just emails and messages I'm getting from people. It, it's happening. So, so to me, whether those folks do or don't, I, I, you know, like, I don't live by. I, I'm not very concerned about what they think. Perfect. Well said. I,
6: I guess from a personal standpoint, Brock, I, we often hear and see in social media that people who are trying to champion various causes say they're exhausted mentally and emotionally trying to fight the good fight. But when you get the kind of feedback and the reception that you have in this tour, uh, does it empower you?
7: Oh, yeah, it feels me. I mean, you know, I had a mother in D.C. reach out to me. Um, I spoke to her son's best friend's team sent me an email and said that he came over and told her all about it and said that I changed the way he saw the world and I changed his life. You know, I was working um, with a an academy and they had a number of Russian players. And the players didn't want to come. Hmm. But they were told, no, this is a part of what we do and, and you're in Canada and this is what we believe in. And they that through it by the end. Uh, one of the players who was the most adamant about not coming was the most engaged out of anyone in the room talking to me the most and shook my hand and thanked me at the end. Well,
6: how does so, that, how does that well, make you feel after an interaction like that?
7: It's rewarding. It, it, it's, it's proof to me that this works and, and my approach works and that, um, I think we can engage with folks and have conversations and humanize issues and and help evolve things. And so, yeah, I'm running on four hours of sleep a night and and I'm tired and you know the emotional labor that comes with all of this and dealing with you know some real serious sad things you know, from people. Um, but those types of stories, those. Things fuel it you know it, it makes it all worthwhile it it's it, uh you forget how tired you are and you just keep going at it uh, what's next for you brock well i'm on my toronto leg now so we're 90 teams in and and i have another 23 booked here already with we're still taking more in the gta and then after that it's Um, take a little break, get back to regular speaking engagements and all that fun stuff, but planning the next one. I want to make this an annual thing. Outstanding. If people want to book you, where do they go? They can go to my website, brockmengilis.com, brockmengilis.com slash tour for the tour, or uh, social media, brockmengilis33.
6: Brock, I'm a little biased, but you're one of my all-time favorite people. Thank you so much for doing this. I greatly
7: appreciate it. Thanks, Jim. I appreciate you.
1: A celebration of the Chinese New Year now with Shaliza Backus and the Year of the Dragon. The
8: Lunar New Year begins on February 10th, and this year marks the Year of the Dragon. There is a beautiful, immersive event happening at the Markham Museum, and to tell us more about that is Markham's Mayor, Frank Scarpetti.
9: Well, this is a a, a wonderful new uh, event that's taking place uh, in the city of Markham at the Markham Museum, celebrating the Chinese New Year, but really celebrating Chinese culture as well we'll have uh, over 250 vibrant lanterns spread across the uh, Markham Museum site with 20 different scenes. So this is really a wonderful display, and uh, it's not just for the Chinese community. It's for people of all backgrounds and actually for people of all ages to come and enjoy this very uh, colorful display. And it actually builds as well on the opportunity while you're at the museum to see a, an amazing exhibit that is currently on called Standing in the Doorway, Lived Histories and Experiences of the Chinese Community. And this was a, a, a specially curated uh, exhibit that was developed here locally to commemorate the 100th anniversary of the Chinese Exclusion Act. So great stories uh, to be told, uh, while a dark chapter In in Canadian history I think it speaks to resilience and it really speaks to how our nation has has evolved and it's evolved to the point where we have this this lunar Night year of the dragon uh, lantern display happening from February the 8th to the 25th
8: and I think that just goes to show how multicultural and diverse Markham really and truly is
9: you know Markham is Canada's most diverse community And there's different ways to to celebrate that diversity. And like I said, this is a first-time opportunity for us to host this Lantern Festival. And I think uh, people will enjoy the experience.
8: And thank you, Mayor Scarpetti. And continuing with the great information about this amazing event, I'm joined by Olivera Pavlovich, who is part of Events. They are coordinating the whole thing. How are you? Good, how are you? I'm great. Thank you so much for joining us. And we are so excited. I mean, there are so many communities in New York region that celebrate the Lunar New Year. So can you tell us how this event came about? And it looks spectacular.
10: Uh, We're so excited to bring this event to the city. And we've been working on it actually for a couple of years of wanting to bring these lanterns to the community. And we have a partner that uh, we met that is actually bringing them directly from China. We are so excited to bring traditional lanterns. To the community to be part of the lunar new year and in addition to the lanterns we sort of developed this really great big event with so many cool features that are unique and a, and a new way to celebrate
8: that is so cool and can you walk us through what this entire event's going to look like for attendees absolutely so Honestly, I think you're going to be able to spend a couple of
10: hours there. It's not longer. You could spend the entire day there. There's so much to do. So aside from the Lantern Trail, which is almost a kilometer long, you are going to be able to go snowshoeing, skating, and there are indoor activities. There are three exhibitions that the Markham Museum is featuring during this event. Um, In addition to those, there is also indoor activities and vendors to shop, arts and crafts, they have a really cool baby dragon encounter where you'll be able to interact and learn about dragons and their significance to the Lunar New Year. So some really unique things to experience.
8: That is so cool. That just It just sounds like so enticing. And of course, this will be open to every single community, not just those who celebrate the Lunar New Year.
10: Absolutely. We want it to be multicultural. We want it to be inclusive for everyone. And it's a really fun celebration. I think that it's always fun to learn about new communities and new cultures, but It is also uh, meant for everyone to come and enjoy.
8: And Oliver, let me ask you, if you had a favorite part of the entire experience, what would you choose? Oh my gosh, that's a hard one. Um, I would probably say the lanterns. There are
10: some really cool displays that are going to be available for everyone to see and take photos with. So I'm really excited to see them. We haven't seen them ourselves yet. We've seen the rendering, so it'll be so exciting to see them
8: come to life. Exciting. And can you give our listeners some details as to when the event's running and how they can get tickets? Absolutely. So we are open from February 8th until the
10: 25th. Uh, It is open on select dates, typically Thursday to Sunday we
8: will be open on
10: Valentine's Day on it, which is Wednesday, February 14th. So tickets can be purchased online at lunarnights.ca.
8: That is absolutely so exciting. Olivera Pavlovich from L Events. Thank you so much for joining us. This is an amazing addition to the Markham community. Once again, it's called Lunar Nights, Year of the Dragon Festival. It's happening at Markham
1: Museum and it kicks off on February 8th. Thank you, Olivera. If you missed any part of the feed, please go to 1059theregion.com or wherever you get your favorite podcasts, including Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Amazon Music, and Audible. I'm Ann Romer. Thank you so much for listening.